Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the UWA Alumni Voices podcast. I'm Rod Blanford, and I'm here today with Glenn Travers, who graduated from UWA with a Bachelor of Commerce in 1976. After training to be a chartered accountant here in Perth, Glenn built a $700 million venture capital operation with the support of some major financial entities. Following a move to London and having been involved in various industry sectors, Glenn moved into the biopharmaceutical sector and was involved with taking medical breakthroughs to market, which have changed the face of medicine. Glenn is a member of the UWA Business School's Ambassadorial Council UK chapter. Glenn, it's great to meet you and welcome back to Perth. Thank you. So you started Western Capital Limited right here in Perth in 1984. Can you tell us a little about the mood in Perth at that time? Uh, Robert was amazing. Um, I was able to borrow a million dollars personally in the mid 80s with no background wealth to invest in the company that I was starting, uh, Western Capital, uh, from the Commonwealth Bank. My wife and I sold our family home and we set off on the adventure of a lifetime getting involved in uh, establishing one of the first venture capital vehicles in Australia. Perth at the time was just swashbuckling with pretty ambitious and amazing corporate raiders who acquired major local and international assets using the international and local debt and equity markets. Uh, but also at the time, it was um, a bit of a buzz because the America's Cup final was coming to Fremantle. And as for those who knew, uh, it drew an awful lot of international bankers and investors from all over the world. And strangely enough, we managed to strike up a deal to establish a leverage buyout business in which we completed uh, shortly after the America's Cup, the largest leverage buyout deal in the world at the time with uh, Mike Milken's Drexel Burnham, including debt of about half a billion dollars from Westpac and set up with the two partners that we had a wonderful day out on the ocean with from the New York Bear Stearns Investment Bank. Um, that billion dollar buyout was of the international operations of a food group called Beatrice International. We won the, uh, won the bid by $5 million out of a billion dollar bid. So it was a French group, I remember called Lawrence Prust missed out and they were very disappointed because it was an amazing opportunity and it came really from Perth, Western Australia and the activities and the attitudes then. As a result of that, getting up Western Capital as a venture vehicle, raising quite a lot of money, there was a lot of liquidity available to us because of early successes we had in some of our investments. So it was, a, it was an exciting time and place to be doing business. It was... Um, surreal in a way uh, because I'd never I was quite young I was 27 or so when we started the company uh, 29 when it listed and, um, and we really hadn't seen venture capital or growth in asset values the way they appeared on the stock market most of it in the past had been great gold companies or iron ore companies etc but this was a lot to do with aggregation of assets by entrepreneurs in Western Australia who went out internationally and ended up, up acquiring some really incredible international assets with great foresight in the end the leverage cost them quite a bit when the markets fell away but it still showed what was possible from Western Australia and the attitude here. You know, Perth was always a fantastic place to do business in one sense because even though it's the most isolated place on the planet probably, um, it, it's incredibly time efficient to uh, get to quality advisors and stockbrokers, everybody you need in the capital market. 
um, and virtually they were within a short walk and you got to know them all very well. You did have to go Eastern States at times, so it was a little bit difficult in Perth uh, without a network. And Perth had quite a shallow and a narrow, mostly resources capital market. But I was really fortunate to have four like-minded groups that co-founded Western Capital with me, which allowed me to leapfrog some of the local challenges and be able to move more internationally. So do you think life would have been different if you had grown up in the Eastern States? Well, I certainly wouldn't have established Western Capital it was a uniquely West Australian entity founded by West Australian established partners, a leading law firm, a leading chartered accounting firm, a leading financier and a leading stockbroker. So um, it, that would not have been possible if I hadn't have been in Western Australia. It was also great to have had the credibility of going to the best university in Western Australia, being UWA, of course. And so I wouldn't really have seen much difference between growing up in Perth versus the Eastern States. I did realise once I was travelling and with Fletcher Challenge through Broadlands Finance, which was our major shareholder, along with the other partners, it did give me the opportunity to mix in the circles that were making a lot of decisions in the Eastern States. And I could see there was a fair bit of prejudice against some of the success that was being achieved in the West, particularly because it was challenging the established order of business. You may not recall, but there were some people attacking uh, BHP from the Western Australia. We had a go at uh, one of the largest or the only major pharmaceutical company. We built a large stake in Fall Wings and so on. And, and they were really core assets of the establishment. And to have the, the, the West Australians taking that on was only possible because of the international financing that was to be arranged from Perth. Can you tell us a little about how your UWA networks actually played a role in your life during that time? So it, it really started by being employed from the campus at UWA towards the end of my training in the BCom. They used to set up an opportunity to meet some of the key participants in Perth in whatever area you wanted to move in and particularly the chartered accounting area. I saw chartered accounting as a stepping stone into the future to be an investment banker and eventually and perhaps run my own business. Um, so I was uh, only went to one interview and it was with uh, Sir Charles Court's chartered accountancy firm. Through that, I then was able to utilise their network, which then gave me introductions to Robinson Cox, which is now Clayton Newts, the listed finance group, Broadlands Finance, uh, which was Fletcher Challenge operating through Broadlands here, and stockbrokers Patterson Ordmanette, who together with my old chartered accounting firm, we formed the co-founders of uh, Western Capital. So, you know, if that was networks playing on networks, playing on networks mm -hmm. in the middle of that I, I'd left chartered accounting, gone into investment banking, joined a local investment bank, probably one of the only ones in Western Australia called CIBC. And uh, through through those connections and the New Zealand connections with Fletcher Challenge, I was provided with a pretty broad entree to key players to be able to complete in Australia at the time a pretty important uh, leverage buyout transaction with some leverage partners in um, in the eastern states, uh, Macintosh Stockbrokers, uh, Pacific Western, a, a California-based bank that was also based in Sydney and ourselves and we bought and sold NBN broadcasters within a year and sold it for $100 million having uh, taken out assets and broken it up and on the way through. Networks were amazingly important from a small isolated place but I found once you were in the networks could utilize the networks and, and leverage off them I wasn't actually particularly conscious of it it was just the way it would happen and you build good relationships with people and they start to introduce you to the next person and before you know it you're you know you're actually in the center of whatever's happening in the industry you're looking at. In the early part of your career, you operated in a range of investments in leverage buyouts, fashion retail, heavy engineering, and then you moved into the medical sphere. So can you tell us how that transition occurred? At one point, we had uh, 15 or so investments 
participants in the group with five listed companies and more than 10 CEOs, all more capable than me probably, reporting into me. Whilst that was an amazing creation, I started to realize the complexities of management of so many capable individual uh, leaders. And I found the CEOs that were going really well really didn't want us to get in the way of their business plan, even though we might have controlled the entity. And then those that were in trouble had their arms around me so tight. Uh, basically, they were dragging me down and at times I was threatened to be drowning with them. So I tended to spend a lot more time on the on the entities that were struggling than you would be the entities that were, were really doing well. So as a result of that, we sort of all, always understood the 80-20 rule for VC in those days, which was about 20% of investments broke even or succeeded, which were usually better than 10 times multipliers. So you, you could do really well if you had a couple of big winners. But it meant you usually had more CEOs struggling to build their businesses than succeeding. And I knew that that structure meant that at some point we'd have to become more focused. And the way to do that was to focus down more on an industry or an area that we felt had the potential for a big multiplier in our market cap. What was it that drew you into the life science industry? What was the, what was the trigger for you? So it was sort of a double trigger. It was... Um, it was an incredible opportunity, we felt, because it was really just starting to take off the biotech industry. We were tracking in California pretty closely. I really liked the leveraged biotech industry. I thought that was just full of incredible opportunity at the time. But I also had a personal interest in doing more than just making money. So as part of the group review of what was making VC work really well in the US, I was watching the unbelievable success from two investments in two biotech companies called Genentech and Amgen. They really created the life science venture capital industry in America because of their success. They they went to multi-billion dollar valuations fairly quickly and um, the cascade of funds that flowed out of that was phenomenal. And people kept looking for more and more venture opportunities in the life sciences arena. They were developing the first recombinant protein drugs, which was basically a method of making proteins that are in your body um, through a manufacturing process rather than having to harvest them from animals, including first recombinant insulin, erythropoietin, and GCSF, which were red and white blood cell rebuilders. They were revolutions in the biotechnology industry, and those drugs combined have gone on to sell between them about $20 billion plus a year each. And so it's, it's created an industry of enormous value. We looked at that and said, you know, there are many others coming following that, and we felt that that would actually actually be a, an interesting opportunity if we could convert those injectable drugs, which they all had to be, into oral drugs. We felt that a lot of their potential was being limited by the fact that injections are quite difficult and have to be done in a, a certain setting, etc. We set about uh, scouring the world in a search and development process, looking for a source of technology that might allow us to do that. Um, strangely enough, we found that uh, with a professor who was based in Seoul in South Korea, and he was formerly a medical director from Johnson & Johnson in Tokyo, and he was doing his own thing in South Korea uh, trying to solve this problem. So we bought that IP together with the professor, merged him with a UK emerging pharmaceutical company led by a brilliant medic and decided to focus on those assets rather than the other ones and therefore sell out of our other strategic holdings over time. Was that your eureka moment, Glenn, when you thought this is a path I want to follow or, or did it happen more imperceptibly than that? I think it was a eureka moment in the sense that, you know, I could see that it had the potential to create what you needed to create 
create for a listed company with shareholders and stakeholders who were obviously keen to see the asset grow and employ, etc. So the narrowing of the focus was actually a relief because I was uh, I would have to move to London to do it. There was a strong pharmaceutical industry established and a deeper capital market to fund us. At the time, we had offices through the leverage buyout and various other activities, offices in New York, London, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Bangkok, and Sydney. And I used to have to do a circuit once a month, which would take me about two weeks to get around to all these places where there were chief executives and directors, etc. So it was a eureka moment to be able to see a clear way forward that we could relinquish some of those other assets, see some real potential with this biopharmaceutical program, which was innovative in its time, uh, probably the first one done in Western Australia, and take it out into the international arena. I, I remember, for instance, one day I was asked to, you know, when we were trying to get Bank Parabar to take 20% of our company and to buy out the New Zealand interest in the company, I got a call where I had to go to Bank Paribas boardroom for a one-hour meeting. Uh, so, you know, I get on a plane, fly there from Perth, I have the one-hour presentation, fly back. So, you know, I really did appreciate the potential to relocate to London, uh, to be more centrally located on a time basis and also to be able to be more part of that industry. Was it just a location that drew, drew you to London? Tell, tell us a little bit about that that journey and that move for you. Yeah, so I, I, when I was young, I was really keen to travel with whatever I did. I, I felt that there was a lot to be gained from moving into the international zone, but using the benefits of what I'd learned in Western Australia and the way of operating, which I do find internationally is recognized and accepted as Aussies in the international arena are always highly regarded because of their commitment and effort and they are prepared to take on the whole of a problem rather than segment themselves off and say well this is my bit you do the other bit. But anyway, I wanted to travel and gain experience internationally so I could become an investment banker. And uh, when I was training as a chartered accountant here, coincidentally, Pricewaterhouse and a few others were actually short of young chartered accountants in the UK through their training processes. And they were looking to pick up some CAs out of Australia. So they crossed over, actually, as I was writing to them, they wrote out to Western Australia and to the whole of Australia, actually, to see if they could uh, pluck a few budding chartered accountants out to take them up there for two years stints and we'd work very very heavy hours in the winter which was their end of year and they let us uh, travel in Europe for the summer so it was a brilliant opportunity and it gave me an opportunity to uh, work with graduates from Cambridge and Oxford and some of the best institutions in the world and see what they were like and also to learn in some of the biggest industries in the UK and that really paved the way later on when we saw an opportunity in London with this pharmaceutical company that we acquired it was no big deal really to be able to step out and relocate the family initially for a few years and just see how it unfolded. And because I was familiar with the territory, it really meant I was able to drop into that capital market quite easily. So Glenn, tell us about the opportunities that London presented, but then also how you maintained a connection with Western Australia. So London created the opportunity to get into deeper capital markets, which were critical for an emerging biopharmaceutical company. As you may know, it's 700 million, maybe a billion dollars to develop a drug and takes a, a while. So we definitely needed to be international. And so, you know, I, I was sort of able to take advantage of that, but also the industry benefits. But in particular, uh, because Bank Paribas were becoming a very important part of our activity as a, a major shareholder, they had their network. So that being in London was much easier to deal with them in the same time zone. 
Uh, and also, at the same time, we created an, an entree uh, via Tokyo, where we had an investment from Nomura's uh, venture capital arm. They took a position in the company too. Obviously, Nomura uh, followed on from that as a broker and, and gained a lot of comfort from having Paribar involved, etc. So it, we became part of a different circle, and it was quite a difficult transition to actually make without those connections one by one. So we were able to take advantage of that and move forward in the industry that we chose. Ability to connect with Australia was sustained and quite important through that process because we were listed in Australia and that was an important part of Paribas investment process. They didn't want to be in a locked into an unlisted entity and, and the Australian listing was highly regarded. They knew it was a high quality listing so it gave us street credibility everywhere we went, whether it was US or, or Europe. And, and that listing then meant that we were still keeping in touch with Australian institutions. So that meant that I would still make tours back to Sydney, Melbourne, Queensland, sometimes uh, South Australia occasionally, but also Western Australia. So we were able to keep in touch with uh, what was going on in Australia and uh, particularly some of the other activities which you know we, we invested in to Australian entities, etc., while we were operating out of London. So tell us how your connection to Perth came about and specifically your connection with Nobel laureates Barry Marshall and Robin Warren. Um, the connection back to Perth with the Nobel laureates was through an arrangement that we were we were building an Australian pharmaceutical company as well. And in that, we were viewing a number of opportunities, one of which was what we thought was a really exciting project coming out of Australia, which was the discovery that a bacteria called Helicobacter uh, caused stomach ulcers. And this was quite a revolution because the two biggest drugs in the world, Zantac and Tagamet, owned by Glaxo and SmithKline, they were both more than billion dollar drugs and they were both going to be utilized to deal with these stomach ulcers for the rest of your life but never actually cured them and the great opportunity that Marshall and Warren had observed was that the possibility was if you could find the helicobacter infection you could change the outlook for these people by treating them within three weeks and that that would be a cure. So um, there was a lot of skepticism around at the time. Barry had uh, left Australia and gone to the US uh, trying to get support for his work. And and there was uh, scepticism driven by a lot of competitive action too. So you can understand big companies potentially being threatened by uh, somebody who discovers a cure and it, it went right through the, the industry. So we set about researching with a company called Delta West, a local small company that had some rights to uh, the first diagnostic for the ulcer bacteria called Clotest. We acquired those rights. Uh, we were then joint holders of the patent rights and royalties from the patents, which Marshall and Warren had. And uh, we set about developing that together with Delta West. Uh, that was a lab-based test, but what we saw and what we're really interested in was a point-of-care test, which would have been a first in the infectious diseases area in the world. And that was to bring into the home or to the doctor's office the ability to tell immediately, a little bit like the pregnancy test at the time, that you you had this bacteria or not. So we saw that as the great market for it and having a London type of view about it. We believed that the claims that were being made we had them reviewed by one of our great entrepreneurial professors in Australia, Professor Clancy, who was an AM himself, who produced the first oral vaccine against mucos of using mucosal immunology for a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, often known as bronchitis. Uh, he did the due diligence. He liked what he saw. We trusted him, had great success with him. Uh, so he gave us the technical comfort we needed to back this thing all the way. And so we decided we were going to make this known in Europe and actually make a play for it. So uh, from there, we decided to utilize our, our current stockbrokers, Lehman Brothers, to spread the word about people who had stomach ache and stomach ulcers 
could find out if they had this bacteria using our new five-minute point-of-care test. It created an enormous storm in the, in the capital markets in London. No one had actually gone in with doctors into the city and said, you know, we're sitting here waiting for anybody who feels that they um, have, have got a long-term problem with stomach ache and so on. And we had doctors diagnosing and giving them this instant test and then um, allowing them to be treated over time or sending them back to their GP so they could be treated. And, um, and it really did transform the stomach ulcer hospitalization rate and market. We then sold those rights uh, to some of the largest pharma and diagnostic companies such as Boringer Mannheim, Beckman Dickinson, Astra, later to become AstraZeneca. And the latter one, we, we created this unique partnership to try and take on Glaxo in its home market, the UK, in a unique groundbreaking promotional strategy for detection and cure of gastric ulcers. But it was quite interesting that it probably took an Australian company to be able to make that happen because we had the belief, we had the, uh, the, the lack of fullness of understanding of what the challenges might be to get into that space. But we we eventually succeeded after a lot of pushing and because we had strong backers, we had the muscle to be able to um, push through that change. And that started to transmit internationally and with what Barry was doing in other parts of the world at the same time, the momentum just gathered until there was no longer any doubt that this was one of the great breakthroughs of the last century. It must have been really exciting to be a part of that. It was exciting, but it was also um, when you're in the midst of it, you're more looking at the storm that you've created because, you know, even though we were quite a large cap company with a lot of financial resources taking on the might of the two largest pharmaceutical companies in the world with their lead product was no mean feat. And, you know, it was something that was quite daunting in a way. We, we couldn't quite understand uh, what, what we'd rattled. As it turned out, it was, it was good for patients and it was good for hospitals. It was good for doctors it was good for for the world really so you know we we kept at it creating a cure that worked within three weeks was was pretty mind-blowing for what was a chronic disease before that yeah so glenn you've spent a lot of time sharing your knowledge skills and networks through your work serving on the european and international boards of the usa-based young presidents organization which represents 1,000 european ceos across 15 countries and on the international board dedicated to improving 20,000 CEOs via education and idea exchange. You're also a member of the UWA Business School Ambassadorial Council UK chapter. So tell us what drew you to getting involved in educating the next generation like this? I had a bit of a catharsis after Western Capital listed after just 18 months when I was turning 30 and I became a paper millionaire. I, I sort of mused about my dad's situation who'd been working for 40 years, giving his all in time and effort in upper management of a well-known local business here in Perth. And um, uh, when he retired, he retired with much less than I'd accumulated in 18 months. Uh, however, I, I missed out on his fake gold watch. Um, <laughs> I found that difficult. So I, I wanted to do something more useful and just make money via turnarounds and leverage buyouts. I felt that the involvement with trying to assist these amazing innovators and using the knowledge that I had from the capital markets to be able to help finance them, uh, to give them the opportunity to, to transform the well-being for many. Did this involvement teach you things about yourself? Was it a learning journey for you also? Yes, it made me realise that I, I wanted to evolve from my teenage plan to be wealthy. It paved the way for my ultimate move into social entrepreneuring in healthcare and education, which in turn took me to building my private group developing biopharmaceuticals in the UK and elsewhere. 
and also coming down to earth assisting local schools in the UK, which was something I'd never done. I was always on a plane, didn't even know my neighbours. And then getting involved with the Young Presidents Organisation, being on their board in Europe, and then being voted in by the Europeans, which is strange for an Australian, to represent them on the international board, which was quite a, a responsibility, but also a, an amazing opportunity to see how so many great CEOs from around the world function. And then at the same time, I was, because I was interested in education, very, we'd worked with 16 different universities around the world. We had people embedded in Cambridge and McGill and all sorts of universities all over the world in our biopharmaceutical company. I, I really felt universities were extremely important to the future of innovation and, um, and life-changing programs for, for uh, the communities. So I was very keen to get involved when David McKinley invited me to assist in some way with the University of Western Australia Ambassador Program. At UWA, we've got this concept of lifelong learning. So tell me what does lifelong learning mean to you and how should universities facilitate this? Well, firstly, I think it means humility because if you don't have that, you think you know it all. I do recall walking into a London institution when I was promoting Cortex International in the UK and we were doing really well and um, he listened to my story. He hadn't met me before and I think we were doing a 20 million pound raising or something. And he said, you know, Glenn, you're not Jesus Christ. You can't walk on water. And obviously I was giving off this radar that basically said I, I'd lost my humility. Everything had gone so well, you know, that I thought that I could achieve anything. And I think, you know, you can sometimes lose touch with your requirement to continue to learn and have your radar out for issues that might come along the way. So I look back on my life. That was actually quite life-changing for me, that comment, because, you know, I always believed in constant learning and always believe that uh, there's never enough and I always believed in mentors I've always had mentors I started when I was young immediately beyond my UWA degree uh, in the chartered accounting firm which required another three years of training then I did a two-year part-time securities industries course when I was launching Western Capital which was invaluable to me as a CA I lectured and marked papers for them because I believed in the education that that provided I became a presenter for the Securities Institute course for mergers and acquisitions, which I really enjoyed. But actually, in the process, we were actually doing mergers and acquisitions. And it always brought me into the detail, which sometimes as a CEO, you don't actually get. It really did transform the way we structured certain deals, because you have to make sure you fit the legal requirements. Um, and then during my time in YPO, I created an industry-focused biotech roundtable, taking a small group of 15 to 20 CEOs to places like Harvard, Stanford, the Scripps Institution in San Diego, the Pasteur Institute in Paris, amongst others and learnt a huge amount from each of those. I've attended for a number of years uh, YPO JV with um, Harvard University for an annual CEO on-campus course, utilising their best resources who also learned from a room full of CEOs. And we often had invited in the case study company to listen to the discussion. So they basically got free input for, from 50 international CEOs locked in a room trying to solve their contemporary issues. So I did the same kind of course in Switzerland, in Lausanne at IMD, uh, and that gave me some European exposure to that kind of education and just generally have benefited enormously from all those experiences. So, you know, what I learned was that uh, the opportunity for universities linking into key organisations and providing relevant practical up-to-date education will always attract successful businesses to encourage their C-suite and key execs to improve through continuing education in exec courses. 
in, in UWA, for instance, the business, the medical, the legal, engineering, even art here in Perth could all be continuous learning hubs for the local communities. And if they're good enough, they can be relevant internationally and attract international people. And added to that, I think uh, the alumni, which I believe in, is an international network um, which will also facilitate gravitation back to the university and and will also help and as i think we can identify resources could assist with student experiences and and satisfaction through introductions and some mentorship and examples glenn apart from the current crisis healthcare faces worldwide challenges to varying degrees what do you see as the fundamental problems and can you see any potential solutions The fundamental issues are budget constraints, obviously, Um, demographics, changing lifestyles, eating habits, and those left out uh, self-destructing and needing medical and mental health interventions. Um, The politics of offering free or below-cost healthcare services to an ever-increasing demand from populations expecting to have the latest and best treatment modalities, which have an ever-increasing cost, is a squared circle. Uh, given all the other tugs on the country's purse strings. The fact that the first million dollar drug treatment is here, uh, and if a country thinks it can import all of the amazing innovation it needs, it will be left financially bereft unless it has amazing GDP growth or nurtures and develops some of its own intellectual property internationally. The difficulty with the latter everywhere I've seen is uh, choosing the projects to keep and to finance them. Um, For example, an Australian innovation fund would say $100 billion dollars Uh, would be a good start. You know, some of the royalties from our amazing resource exports could have been used to build a fund over the last 10 years, like Finland have done with their oil revenues. But as for solutions, the the more detailed solutions, there's, there's a broad spectrum to consider and bring together, including improving right at the start with uh, social justice and equality. Law and order has to be part of this uh, because of the drugs and violence and the utilisation of resources, health resources that those activities cause. In my personal view, minimising tobacco usage is fundamental. Responsible food and beverage producers reducing sugars. Advertising standards um, being maintained and monitoring influences to make sure those processes are being properly incorporated into our society, as well as relevant to the needs of innovations from educational institutions. We really need groundbreaking local pharmaceutical and biotech companies in the healthcare space, if possible. We could develop it and, and utilize the improving efficiency possibilities of medical and hospital services using artificial intelligence and data capture. Care home delivery is critical. Triaging by GPs, connected home monitoring, all have to function within the constraints of a country's own growth and economic capacity. But if you want to have the best solution for the maximum number of people at the lowest possible cost, these innovations would have to be brought in. And as you probably recognize, poor countries mostly have poor health care. So you have to have Uh, GDP growth in order to be able to continue to afford what is um, being demanded by the public. Um, So it's a coordinated, coherent policy linking all those dots is what is required. And this is a bit opposed to the top-down approach inevitably that sort of comes from a government trying to meet these needs of an ever more demanding and internet-informed voting public. You know, in particular, the use of the latest technologies like AI applications for all the aspects above will assist. You know, AI has now shown for the first time that 
reviewing millions of photographs of cells and uh, cell activity has been able to improve the accuracy of cancer diagnosis in certain subsets. That's only going to get better. So delivery of services and knowledge of disease processes, uh, creating better diagnoses and therapies, more efficient hospital medical services through data centers and management systems, they're all possible now uh, and they're going to get better through um, these applications but we have to be able to access them and we have to have the resources to be able to do that. So in order to deal with the healthcare issues at the source, we have to encourage or ensure that people take responsibility for their own health. And this is difficult for politicians. We probably have to reward them for not smoking, for not becoming obese, for not using illicit or recreational drugs, for enjoying alcohol sensibly, improving education and awareness for the public and particularly the criminal element um, to make sure that they're not left destitute and reoffending, increasing the opportunity for everybody, integrating immigrants um, successfully, as the country does, a, this country anyway, does a pretty good job. But these are all really important things because when you lose people out of society and they become disenfranchised, they, they can create uh, crime, but they can also create a lot of health issues for themselves and for other people. So, so we have to make people who abuse the welfare state pay an economic price for it. Uh, you know, the state can no longer afford a free healthcare ride for people who are reckless or criminal. Um, there are too many needy people out there who really need those resources spent on themselves who probably uh, follow the rules through their life and it needs to be fairly and balanced in a balanced way applied. So it's hard to come to terms with a statistic I saw the other day, but uh, there are 480,000 deaths a year sourced from the CDC in the US attributable to smoking in the US alone. And um, when you think that we allow that to erode the well-being of our societies, if that is compared to what we have done to our societies economically with this current crisis, uh, for me, it's uh, to say at least very confusing. Yeah, my, almost mind-blowing, isn't it? The, the, yeah. the conflict between those two things. Um, we're going to move back to, to leadership. So you will inevitably have seen a variety of leadership styles in your business life, especially in the entrepreneurial sector. What are the attributes of leaders who are effective in creating and sustaining successful companies? So most often I see the creative versus sustaining attributes needing two quite different leadership types. The first is dealing with creative, innovative chaos, and the latter in the smoother yet equally challenging waters of systems and delivery on entrepreneurial promises. So I, I see the intelligent persistence is a key success factor, but also an ability to assess a loss or roadblock, let go and move forward. You know, you've got to be able to recognize the situation you find yourself in. Um, but I do believe that the continuing education improves the outcomes for all chief executives. It's critical to develop a local and world understanding to give you a picture of what your environment you're working in. The widest networking exposure to the best people and experiences locally and internationally can help you with this. And I do see other attributes such as authentic communication and collaborative skills, really important, uh, being able to get on with people and explain what you're doing clearly and concisely. 
and sometimes just being smart in in uh, all the ways that that can conjure and it's not mm-hmm. just intellectual it's it's actually it's an awareness uh, i find so uh, you know i've seen so many uh, ceos in so many industries probably dealt with more than most people in their lives they they pretty much all have a constant energy and a commitment and alertness and ability to deal with failure and setbacks there are some who i've seen sail through from the start to finish and they're some of the great entrepreneurs in the right place at the right time with the right networks to the human and economic capital to allow them to get through. Uh, and, and I think some of them will come from our own alumni in the future as it shapes up as a stronger, more connected community. You know, so creating an alumni that's strong and linked and prepared to help and share internationally is very desirable for UWA growth, but it's also very helpful to the leadership styles for an individual, whether they're more entrepreneurially oriented or more systems and delivery oriented. So your career has been marked by great success. You know, you've created billion dollar organizations and you've been the catalyst for great change. If you could give one piece of advice to younger members of our UWA community who are looking to you for insight on how to start their own businesses, what would it be? There's no magic bullet as uh, it is a confluence of factors, as I've said earlier, relevant to that time and place and skill set to take advantage of them that produce the entrepreneurial opportunity and outcome. But that is the exciting bit because the constant change and progress or decline of ourselves as human beings on this planet always provides capable newcomers with a chance to find a way in. If, if um, all of it was constant, it'd be very difficult to break in. So with all the knowledge that's available to most of us now and the artificial intelligence to interpret enormous amounts of data, speed of adaptation is now really important. Look for the well-researched gap in the market that you individually feel that you have some skill or comparative advantage over. Um, Be open to being mentored, very important to me. Be open to twisting on a dime. Don't be put off by the setbacks and negative forces and, and just be resilient. Um, An interesting survey I saw some years ago was that the best CEOs were often engineers who completed MBAs. Um, That now could be broadened out to a specialist who acquires the financial knowledge to support his or her specialty. And that could be a scientist or it could be uh, a medic or um, other discipline. I often felt myself that my focus in my own training as a financial person may have been a disadvantage without that fundamental technical discipline but in an attempt to succeed in business i'd be careful not to lose oneself and your own values and the opportunities of social entrepreneuring which i've found so rewarding the idea now is coming to light in mckinsey talk of this the triple bottom line which many of you may have heard of the profit people and the planet now has become mainstream as Mm. have socially responsible investment funds so the broader contribution you can make to society as an individual with business and entrepreneurial skills could become your major success in life. So Glenn, with the experience that you've had in entrepreneurship and the healthcare sector over the past 30 years, can you see an obvious way out of the COVID-19 situation? Are there there things that you think governments can do better? You know, what's your take on on the whole matter at the moment? Well, firstly, um, I suppose I should say I've got a bit of a conflict because um, we have four projects in the COVID space um, where evolving at the moment. And in a way, it reflects my thoughts about it. Um, Firstly, uh, COVID is an incredibly dangerous um, uh, virus for certain people. Mm. And very fortunately, it's only for a a relatively small group of people in our community. We're not talking about a virus that is going to attack and and, uh, 
be extremely dangerous for the very young, thankfully, um, nor the middle age, but particularly anybody over the age of 60 and, and more and more over 70 and even more over 80. So that group, that 60 plus group are the group that are really going to bear the brunt of the damage that this causes. And that's not always the case with these infectious viral programs that, that infest our world every 30, 50, 100 years. Um, sometimes it can attack the young, um, which is you know, definitely what we would not want. So the first thing is to say that the people most at risk and therefore the people who are likely to die from this are going to be more, more often over 60 years of age. So what that says is that when you try to control this outbreak, you probably as a country should be more focused in terms of not trying to have sweeping solutions, but have targeted solutions. And, and we did have some advantage from the Chinese data to know that there was a stratified response to the virus. And that was that um, the age groups were, were stratified as I described. And that's been pretty much consistent. There have been some terrible, unfortunate cases of younger people passing away, but very rare. And we don't really know, did they have comorbidities, which is very important. So the idea of shutting off our world economies completely for the sake of saving the over 60s, the small numbers of over 60s, is a social decision, a political decision that's been made. It, it reminds me of when I had to turn around some companies, I'd go into the company, I'd look at the problem. And the easy thing to say is to whoever was going to enact my HR policy, remove three of 10 of everybody in the country, in the, in the company and country. I get rid of those people out of the organization. Now that, you know, you've got to obviously deal with it carefully and understand the importance of those individuals. But that was always the wrong move. And I always felt that you had to be very selective about how you responded to the problem. And so I felt that the idea that you just close all restaurants, you close all meeting places, you close outdoor activities, as, as has sometimes happened in some countries, I, I found was always the sort of slightly lazy way of solving a, a phenomenal challenge. And, and it could have been a very costly way. So I, I may be a little bit controversial in my thinking on this, but I, I did feel from the outset that given what we'd learned from China and the, the way the virus was evolving, uh, we, firstly, you had to deal with it. You, you had no choice. You had to confront it. You had to have a strategy and you had to use the best information you had available. So you needed to stratify it. I think isolate the people that were mostly at risk. They were the ones that were mostly going to pass away through this virus. And if you could reduce the number of deaths, then you would reduce the political pressure on closing everything down from schools to businesses, to travel, to you know everything. If you could could reduce, take away the, the death rate, you would actually have less of a political problem. And I think what we've found is that, you know, because we didn't have a vaccine, because we didn't have a treatment, isolation was the only tool that was available. And so the, the simple solution was, well, don't stratify the, the instruction, basically just have everybody isolate. And I think that's caused a tremendous amount of pain to our economies and will cause it in the future. And whilst uh, you know nobody could see into the crystal ball, I'd be a little bit concerned about whether that has been the most elegant way of dealing with the issue. Do you, do you think governments have good advisors telling them this, or do you suspect that they don't and that the information is is not really getting to our leaders? Well, I've, I've had this issue out with uh, some of the professors in Oxford in the UK. My, my, my thought is that the UK government, for example, 
took a stance which was we've got our chief medical officer and we've got our scientific advisor they're the two key people who understand all this stuff understand the disease understand the damage it can do and we have some models that we've established over the years to tell us um, what the infection rate might be and how we should respond to it. In my view, the unfortunate thing was they didn't have a third advisor. They needed an economic advisor, someone who could understand the social impact, the economic impact, how many deaths there might be from stress in the home, stress of losing a job, suicide. And they're starting to see these things um, rise in the UK. I don't know so much about Australia, what their statistics are looking like because it hasn't seemed to infect Australia as badly yet. So uh, hopefully it won't change. I mean, it's very easy to be commenting like this at this time, looking backwards. I do think we've got to be really careful about not destroying too much of our economies in the, in the purpose of taking on this virus, which needs to be done. I think in terms of the development of diagnosis and treatments, we were working on a, a program with a coronavirus uh, called MERS for an oral vaccine and produced early data on that supported by the uh, British government grant system. And we, uh, we got to a stage where the government was sort of fairly happy that it was possible to develop a vaccine for that. And so the, the work wasn't continued. But it is, it's interesting that if we'd been more prepared and taken those projects all the way through to human usage and looking to see that they were effective in man, we might have had something that was more ready to go and we confronted this latest viral attack. So maybe there was a bit of a lost opportunity there. I, I, you know, again, I don't, you know, I don't think you can blame anybody for it, but it is interesting because I don't think anybody could conceive just how significant the financial impact would be because these costs of these programs might have been £100 million or something. But um, I know the uh, UK economy has written checks for £500 billion because of the fallout from it. And so you say one, one little virus has had that kind of impact. And whilst it's a different virus, you know, I think it behoves all governments to coordinate and have in their artillery cassettes or sequences that they're able to call on at short notice for the future. And I think that will be one of the outcomes, or I hope it is, where there's a coordinated process where we have all these capabilities in our, in our laboratories waiting for any future endemic disease like this. So you think COVID will change the way medicine operates or the industry operates forever, perhaps? I, I hope so, because I think the knowledge is so amazing now. I mean, the speed with which the Chinese were able to identify the genetic makeup of the uh, virus and the structure of the virus, and they made that public, allowed people like us to look at it, look at its weaknesses, see which spike protein we might want to uh, utilize to attach whatever we wanted to to the virus to take it out, basically. The fact that that was available within eight weeks is unbelievable. I mean, 10 years ago, it wasn't even possible. So um, these advances are phenomenal. There's a lot of people around who now have the capability to utilise that knowledge and to make treatments available that might have an impact. It's just that we got caught a bit cold by just not having been quite as advanced as we could have been if we'd continued to invest on the path uh, when MERS was around. My name's Rob Blanford, and this is the Alumni Voices podcast featuring Glenn Travers. Thank you for joining us. And please do tune in to Alumni Voices very soon.